My brother-in-law died suddenly, and now my sister and her kids have to sell their home. That's why I told my husband we could not put off getting life insurance any longer. An agent offered us a 10-year, $500,000 policy for nearly $50 a month. Then we called SelectQuote. SelectQuote found us identical coverage for only $19 a month, a savings of $369 a year. Whether you need a $500,000 policy or a $5 million policy, SelectQuote could save you more than 50% on term life insurance. For your free quote, go to SelectQuote.com. SelectQuote.com. That's SelectQuote.com. SelectQuote. We shop. You save. Full details on example policies at SelectQuote.com slash commercials. The scientific method itself would not have led anywhere. It would not even have been born without a passionate striving for a clear understanding. Albert Einstein was one of the most influential physicists of the 20th century. This Nobel Prize-winning scientist famously developed the groundbreaking theory of relativity, and he helped reshape our understanding of modern physics. Einstein was such an advanced thinker that the world was in awe of his intelligence. And many would wonder, what was it about his mind that made it so superior to most other people. Tonight, we will learn that this obsession with Einstein's mind would not stop with his death. Far from it. Because for one doctor, Einstein's mind would become the obsession that would define and then ruin his life. I'm Peter Lawson, and tonight on Our Curious Past, we hear the extraordinary story of Dr. Thomas Harvey, the man who stole Einstein's brain. Come on in. In December 1948, Albert Einstein went to see Dr. Rudolf Nissen at Brooklyn Jewish Hospital. The eminent professor was complaining of abdominal pain and vomiting, something he had been coping with for many years. So, Dr. Nissen made a surgical incision into Einstein's abdominal cavity to see what the problem might be. The result of this laparotomy looked grim because Nissen discovered an abdominal aortic aneurysm. That's a bulging, weakened area in a blood vessel wall that can balloon in size, and the doctor saw that this one had grown to the size of a grapefruit. I'm so sorry, Professor. It's likely that this condition was caused by Einstein's regular smoking of pipes. Smoking increases the chance of developing an aneurysm by about eight times. Another good reason to consider quitting. Now these days, a surgical repair could have been carried out with grafts, but back in the late 1940s, Dr. Nissen could only take the affected blood vessel and wrap it in surgical cellophane. So he did, and they discharged Einstein on January the 13th, 1949. The prognosis was not good. He would likely be dead in nine months. Professor pleasantly surprised his doctor when he went on to live for another five years. Yet he was always living on borrowed time. He made the most of that time, though, continuing to study and inspire others. He was hard at work on Wednesday, April 13, 1955. He was preparing a speech for a national TV event. It was going to mark the seventh anniversary of Israel becoming a sovereign nation. Einstein was a German-born Jewish man. And he sat at his desk to write this speech, but was soon hit by a severe pain in both his chest and his stomach. 
he collapsed and was rushed to hospital. Dr. Frank Glenn was chief of surgery at New York Hospital Cornell Medical Center. Glenn rushed to Einstein's side and he advised that they carry out a procedure on the aneurysm. Today, this surgery is fairly routine, but back in 55, it came with high risks, since surgeons hadn't perfected it yet. Dr. Glenn presented the idea to Einstein, but the professor declined, saying, I want to go when I want. It is tasteless to prolong life artificially. I have done my share. Time to go. And I will do it elegantly. Two days after his collapse on the Friday, he was admitted to Princeton Hospital. Despite his condition, he was still working from the hospital bed on Sunday, jotting down equations on paper. But as Sunday slipped into Monday, the 18th, something changed. The night nurse was near his bed at 1.15am that morning, and she suddenly heard Einstein mutter a few words in German. Tragically, the nurse could not speak the language. So whatever this remarkable man's last words were, is lost to time. She said she then heard him let out two breaths, the sound of which she had heard before in other patients. This was the sound of a man passing away. And so she checked and she was right. The eminent professor, Albert Einstein, was dead, with 12 pages of calculations at his side. He was 76. Now that Einstein was dead, there was no further need for his previous doctors. This would now be handed over to the chief of pathology at Princeton Hospital. This man was called Dr. Thomas Stoltz Harvey. Dr. Harvey was told the news at dawn, and so he headed into the hospital, realizing that, as a fairly small-town pathologist, he was about to perform an autopsy on the most valuable mind in the world. And there were rumors at the time that Einstein had died of syphilis, He had, after all, about six girlfriends while married to his wife. Yet, when Harvey examined Einstein's abdomen, he found it to be filled with blood. A large blister in his aorta had finally broke. The aneurysm had, as expected, finally caused his death. When Dr. Harvey finished this part of the autopsy, he spent a while looking at the corpse and pondering... He didn't have express permission to remove any of Einstein's major organs, like his brain, for example. Yet it wasn't unheard of for hospitals to just do that in the name of research. And so in a particularly audacious and shocking turn, this doctor just assumed that it would be fine for him to take the brain. So he took a surgical saw and began to cut into Einstein's skull. As he went, the doctor severed cranial nerves and arteries, and then he cracked open the skull and, for a moment, alone, gazed at the treasure that had fueled Einstein's success. Might that brain hold secrets to advanced intelligence, he wondered? Could it help others become as gifted as Einstein? (laughs) When Harvey was finally inside the skull... He slid his fingers around the brain and injected it with a preservative. Then he placed this brain into a bath of formalin, a chemical that would help preserve the brain even further. He weighed the brain too and found it to be 1,230 grams, which was actually a little lighter than the average man's brain. Genius, it appears, does not affect weight. 
Harvey placed the brain in solution and held it there, suspended with strings. At some point, Dr. Harvey left the morgue so he could speak to the reporters who had gathered on the front steps of Princeton Hospital. The world was eager to know about such a significant passing. Harvey shared some of the details, and when he was done, he returned to Einstein's corpse. And it's been suggested that it was while he was out with the press that an ophthalmologist called Dr. Henry Abrams came into the morgue and removed Einstein's eyes. Some sources say that Harvey gave the eyes to Dr. Abrams. It's also rumoured that those eyes are still in a safe deposit box in New York City, waiting to be auctioned off at some point. Whatever the case, a New York Times article announced the death and said there in black and white for all to see that The body was cremated without ceremony after the removal for scientific study of vital organs, among them the brain that had worked out the theory of relativity and made possible the development of nuclear fission. When this story ran in the New York Times, it wasn't only news to the world, but it was news to Einstein's eldest son, Hans Albert. Albert already knew of the death, of course, he'd attended the private cremation, but he'd assumed the body in the coffin was intact. He had no idea that when he had signed the autopsy permit, Dr. Harvey would remove his father's vital organs and brain. Albert was furious. There was no written permission for this to happen. Einstein's executor, Otto Nathan, agreed. He said that in life, Albert Einstein had never given any, quote, specific oral instructions that his body be used for scientific research. So Albert confronted the pathologist, Dr. Harvey, saying, what right did you have in removing my father's brain? Dr. Harvey was pretty bold in response. He reminded Albert that he had signed the autopsy permit, which, if he had read closely, gave them permission to ransack the corpse. But Harvey also tried to persuade Albert of the rare opportunity they had. His father was a bona fide genius, so surely it was in the spirit of science that they should examine and study the brain of this gifted man. There was little else that Hans Albert could do, and perhaps he even saw Harvey's point in the end, but he decided to let the doctor proceed. Since there's no clear record of Albert Einstein's post-mortem wishes, we don't know for certain how he would have felt about this research on his brain. He did once allow a friend of his, Dr. Gustav Buchi, to take an x-ray of his skull. We don't know why Einstein let this happen. Perhaps he was willing for others to examine the shape and structure of his brain. Those x-ray films were sold at auction in 2010 for $38,750. But of course now, Einstein was silent on the matter. And even if he had strongly objected, Harvey had his permission. So he pressed on to study this most remarkable of brains. The brain had to harden before it could be handled. And so Harvey left the brain dangling in that fluid for a few days, suspended in his lab like something from a mad scientist movie. But then finally, he was able to lift the brain out of its tank and he began measuring it and photographing it. And then he began cutting it into lots of pieces. The fact that Dr. Harvey decided to dissect the brain was frustrating to many researchers because when he did so, he removed any opportunity to study the brain intact. 
Dr. Harvey responded to these criticisms, saying that he took colour photographs, but this was made even worse when Harvey failed to show any colour photographs, despite saying he took them. He did have some black and white shots, yet they were limited in their study value. Harvey believed the best way to understand this genius organ was to cut it into small pieces. And he put those pieces of brain tissue onto microscopic slides for examination. The newspapers were very keen to know about Harvey's findings. And so on Wednesday, April 20th, two days after Einstein died, Harvey assured the papers that The study of Einstein's brain will be made by a team of outstanding medical men. One of these men was Dr. Harvey's mentor from Yale University, a man called Dr. Harry Zimmerman. Harvey, after all, was just a pathologist. He didn't have any specialism in neuropathology. So it was good to hear he was assembling this team of specialists. Yet, when Harvey was asked on the progress of his team two days after the announcement about it, he refused to name any of the other scientists on this team. And when people asked him about Dr. Zimmerman, Harvey suddenly said that Zimmerman might be in the group, but he might not. In fact, Zimmerman would not even set eyes on the brain for months. And even then, it was just a set of slides with brain tissue on them. You don't have to be Albert Einstein, and you don't even have to steal his brain to know that HelloFresh can make you a cooking genius this summer. Yes, HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit because it offers chef-crafted recipes that will bring the flavor right to your door. The ingredients are farm fresh and they're sent out pre-portioned to save on waste and to make cooking a cinch. You'll love the delicious seasonal dishes in the new fresh and fit summer menu, but it's even cleverer than you think because HelloFresh menus offer calorie smart and protein smart lunches and dinner options. I love that they do that since I'm pretty hot on getting my protein these days. It really helps with the healthy lifestyle. And are you vegan? Well, there's a bunch of options for you too. It's so easy and flexible, it's no wonder why HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. You might even call it a no-brainer. Sorry, Albert. So go to HelloFresh.com slash Curious50 and use code Curious50 for 50% off plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash Curious50 and use code Curious50 for 50% off plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Einstein's executor, Otto Nathan, who I mentioned earlier, observed all of this and was furious. He called the events surrounding Einstein's brain as, quote, utterly distasteful. And he demanded that all study of any kind be stopped immediately. Yet in a meeting at Otto Nathan's Greenwich Village apartment, Harvey persuaded him that, at least for a short while, it was right to keep on studying the brain. And so it was left at that for years. Harvey sliced parts of the brain to create 12 sets of 200 microscopic slides, and he stored the rest of Einstein's brain in a series of glass jars. He even commissioned a painting of the brain from an artist who had painted portraits of his children. The brain had been split into 240 chunks in total, and he sent out some of the slides to scientists, but the results were disappointing. Many didn't even bother replying. And the ones who did said the brain was not particularly different than the average brain. The US Army even looked at Einstein's brain, because some in the military thought it might give them an intelligence mastery over the Russians. If you think that's odd, it's worth noting that the Russians were also collecting brains from their own geniuses at the time for the same purpose. 
And so people waited for the long-promised paper that would reveal the physiology of a genius. But no scientific paper emerged. Dr. Harvey may well have seen this as an important scientific endeavour. Or he may have simply thought that possession of this illustrious brain was going to bring him respect or even fame and fortune. But whatever the case, he was wrong. The fact that he had taken this brain without the full and proper permission required, and that he'd held onto it for so long, meant his reputation began to plummet as the weeks and months went by. At one point, when no progress was made, his wife even threatened to get rid of this blasted brain. So Harvey took it and kept it away from her. His obsession with the brain would eventually lead to him losing his job, his marriage, and his career in Princeton was over. As the years went by, people started to forget about Einstein's brain. That is until 1978, when a news editor got curious about that old story. Where was that brain these days, he wondered. So he set one of his New Jersey monthly reporters on the story, a young man called Stephen Levy. It was Levy's job to track that brain down. So he went to Princeton Hospital, where Einstein had died and was cut up. But the brain wasn't there. And neither was Dr. Thomas Harvey. So Levy started searching for the doctor, and finally he tracked him down to Wichita in Kansas. He headed to Levy's door and knocked. And when Harvey answered the door, Levy introduced himself and said, Um, hi, I'm looking into a story about Albert Einstein's brain. I'm sorry, but I can't help you with that. Levy said Harvey was very reluctant to talk, but eventually he agreed to meet him in his office at a small medical lab. Levy was surprised to hear that Harvey did indeed admit to having the brain and that he still intended to publish his scientific report, even though 23 years had passed since he'd scooped it out of Einstein's skull, and that he had produced nothing really of worth since then. Levy wrote of Harvey, He was an introverted guy, a polite guy. But he had a pride that he was doing this study, but he didn't have good answers as to why, after almost 25 years, nothing had been published. The conversation took on a weird tone then, when Levy pressed him for pictures of the brain. Levy said a strange look came over Dr. Harvey's face when he asked that, and that the doctor started to grin. He stood up, walked to the corner of the room, and lifted up a beer cooler that was sitting on a stack of cardboard boxes. The box had a label on it that said Costa Cider. He brought the box to Levy, opened it, and reached inside and he started to pull out these really big glass jars. Levy's jaw dropped. Oh my God, that's amazing. Resting in the murky liquid was Einstein's brain. In countless pieces of all shapes and sizes, Levy wrote that the pieces reminded him of candy floating in liquid. He wrote this bizarre encounter up for an article in the New Jersey Monthly, and it caused something of a sensation, prompting a flurry of interest in Einstein's brain. During that summer of 1978, reporters began to flock to Dr. Harvey's home, even camping out on his lawn. The journal Science interviewed him, and researchers began to request samples. So Dr. Harvey began sending pieces of it out. But the way he did so was a little eccentric. 
like when he posted four sugar cube chunks to the University of California in Berkeley. When the researchers at Berkeley opened the package, they found bits of Einstein's brain floating in an old glass jar that Harvey had previously used for Kraft Miracle Whip mayonnaise. Ironically, this article proved to be the catalyst for some actual research. And after Harvey sent it out to multiple agencies, the results began coming in. In 1985, a paper in Experimental Neurology noted that, after studying those four chunks of brain in the mayonnaise jar, it appeared that Einstein had more glial cells for every neuron when compared to a control group of brains. Then, a 1996 study by the University of Alabama said that Einstein's brain appeared to have neurons that were more tightly packed than the equivalent brains in the control group. Might that explain why he was so quick at processing information? A 1999 paper in The Lancet studied Harvey's black and white photographs of the brain and proposed that the part of the brain responsible for spatial cognition and mathematical thought looked wider than normal. The Lancet is one of the world's most prestigious medical journals. Then in 2012, the celebrated anthropologist Dean Falk looked at the brain and revealed that Einstein had an extra ridge on his prefrontal lobe, which is the part of the brain where working memories are held and plans are made. This might have all sounded exciting, but all these results were not particularly conclusive. For example, it wasn't clear if Einstein was born with these neurological differences or if they had developed over time as he'd studied. And the critics said that the conclusions of these studies were speculative at best. And some of the researchers, including Harvey himself, were accused of selection bias in their results. Indeed, a psychologist called Terence Hines claimed that the study of Einstein's brain should really be filed under what he called neuromythology. Despite the critics, Dr. Harvey was keen to share the brain after holding onto it for all these years. So keen to share, in fact, that became reckless with it. You see this in a BBC documentary from 1994. Harvey was in his 80s then. And at one point, the documentary shows him carrying one of the glass jars into his kitchen and then pulling out a piece of Einstein's brain and setting it on a cheese board. He takes a knife and he slices a piece of it off. Why? So he can give it as a souvenir to a visitor called Kenji Sugimoto, who was fascinated with the brain. Dr. Harvey eventually handed over 170 chunks of Einstein's brain to the University Medical Center of Princeton, the very place where Harvey had cut it into pieces without express permission way back in 1955. The man who took charge of those brain pieces was called Dr. Elliot Krauss, the chief pathologist. Krauss was accused of refusing access to Einstein's brain to researchers and never sending parts out. Krauss denied being possessive. He was just worried that people might request it just for bragging rights over possessing such a unique item. He wanted to wait until a legitimate scientific breakthrough warranted such a request. Today, some microscopic slides of the brain are occasionally on display at the National Museum of Health and Medicine in Silver Spring, Maryland. It is one of their most popular attractions. The story of Einstein's brain is a strange and messy epilogue to a remarkable man's life. Someone who truly changed not only the world of physics, but the world in general. And yet, this is not a story about Albert Einstein, really. 
It's about a small town pathologist who one day just happened to get a call at the crack of dawn, saying that the corpse on his table that day was going to be one of the most famous men in the world. That Harvey went ahead and took the brain without prior permission could well have been born out of pure selfish ambition or a genuine assumption that this was a brain that ought to be studied, regardless of the wishes of the deceased or the family. Yet the way he hoarded that brain and sliced it up on a cheese board for visitors suggests that his attitude had changed towards it over the years. It was a treasure at the start. At the end, maybe he just wanted rid of it. After all, he'd lost so much on account of that brain. Yet it is important to note something. This was a brain in demand, and so Dr. Harvey really could have, if he'd wanted to, sold pieces of it. And I think he would have made a sizable amount of money from doing so. But he didn't. Did he refuse to sell parts of the brain because he was rich and didn't need the money? Actually, far from it. This Yale-educated qualified pathologist could have used the money. After losing his career over this brain, he actually lost his medical license in 1988 after failing a three-day competency exam. Instead, he started working at a plastics factory, just so that he could afford to live. Incidentally, the home in which he lived was a second-floor apartment next to a gas station, where he became friends with his neighbor, the celebrated and infamous beat poet, drug addict, and libertarian William Burroughs, who wrote Naked Lunch. The two old men would sit on the front porch of Burroughs' place and often chat about Albert Einstein's brain and the chunks of it, flying around the world for research and sitting in a jar next door. My point is Harvey could have done with the money, but he didn't sell it. But he made serious misjudgments along the way. And he became obsessed with a dead organ that was, in the end, fairly useless. And to lose a marriage, job, and reputation over that is a heavy load to bear. Perhaps it's no surprise to find that in the midst of all this chaos the wisest mind in the room continued to be Albert Einstein himself. Some sources suggest that Einstein had asked for his remains to be cremated and scattered secretly. Why without a public ceremony? Well, Einstein knew that people had a habit of idolizing great intelligence, and so he didn't want other people to turn his resting place into some kind of shrine. When Harvey took the brain that day, He did exactly what Einstein had warned against. The brain became a shrine in itself. This all reminds me of an exchange between Albert Einstein and the comic actor Charlie Chaplin. They met once, and Chaplin said to Einstein, The people applaud me because everybody understands me, and they applaud you because no one understands you. And Einstein then asked Chaplin what all of this attention meant. And Chaplin replied, It means nothing. The saga of Einstein's brain shows a man placing all of his attention on an enigma he was simply unable to understand, which did render it meaningless in the end, which just makes this curious story of history more sad than anything else. And it really makes me wish that Dr. Harvey had taken this quotation from Albert Einstein to heart when Einstein said let every man be respected as an individual and no man idolized I'm Peter Laws and you've been listening to the man who stole Einstein's brain 
on our curious past. Perfections of means and confusion of gold seem, in my opinion, to characterize our age.